Welcome to The Messy Studio with Rebecca Kroll, the podcast at the intersection of art, travel, entrepreneurship, philosophy, and life in general. I am Ross Tickner, Rebecca's audio producer, podcast guru, and her son. Please stay tuned after the show for The Messy Bulletin Board, a segment where we promote our fellow creators. Today we will be continuing our discussion on abstraction. Uh, We're going to be talking a little bit about teaching abstract art and what goes into that. With me, as always, is Rebecca Kroll. Hello, everyone. So we concluded our discussion last time uh, talking about abstraction, and you wanted to talk a little bit more about actually teaching abstraction and how that differs from teaching realism. Sure. And and this, this again, was a, a question from a listener, which we definitely appreciate. And she, she asked uh, the question that led to last week's discussion about uh, you know, how my own work developed in abstraction. And but she was curious, like, how do I talk to people in my classes about it? And how do I help people understand it? So um, it's, it's quite a, it's a very big topic. So I'm just going to touch on it a little bit. And, and the ways that I approach it in class, I think for a lot of people, when you say abstraction, it just means the absence of subject matter, but that's that's only one approach. That that's the approach that might be called pure abstraction, and um, absence of subject matter is kind of a, a negative. It's like what's not there. So I'd kind of rather talk about what is there. <laughs> sure, abstraction still contains substance, and there needs to be something to talk about, even if there isn't a specific subject matter. That's true. And um, I, you know, I I looked up out of curiosity, I looked up what might be said as far as a definition of abstraction. And this one uh, from Merriam-Webster, definition of abstraction is the act of obtaining or removing something from a source. That was kind of an intriguing idea. Um, But there is an emphasis on source, like where, where are your ideas coming from? And that's kind of where I like to start when I'm teaching people who are either new to abstraction or they're just trying to go in a little bit, little bit deeper. Um, so it's kind of either about obtaining ideas by seeing things and looking at things uh, or um, also removing them from their usual context, which is what you'd see in representation. You'd see something in a setting that you recognized. Uh, so it's... it's um, it's a lot, but I think that at the bottom of it is kind of looking for some kind of an essence of of experience, so or thought, and um, there's a lot of different ways to go at it. So it's um, it's something that I I've thought about a lot because when oftentimes when people come to a workshop, they they have a, an idea that now it's time to be abstract, but you know, and they say I'm I'm putting aside everything I've ever done. Now it's time for abstraction. And I mean, just even saying that, I I can see how that would leave you at a bit of a loss. So, <laughs> Do you think that surrealism is, is a good way to kind of bridge that gap between pure abstraction and realism? I do. And I, not everyone, of course, is coming from that background. And there are people who only have ever painted abstractly or maybe don't have much experience at all. But for people that do have that background, you know, it's great. And I I kind of uh, look at ways to approach abstraction in 
kind of three areas, and one of them is from direct observation of what's around you, and that's, of course, what you'd be doing with realism. So what you see, and another approach is kind of what you feel, and the last one is things that you know about, or uh, it's a more intellectual approach. And so um, very often what when I talk to people who are coming at abstraction from realism, they they do have this idea that they have to get rid of all subject matter, but I I do point out that this oh, there's a lot of abstraction and always has been that comes from observing figures, landscapes, anything, and it's just what you do with it that puts it into a more abstract realm, I guess. Um, so, uh, well, it, and, and even realism involves kind of distorting what you see because what you see out there in the three-dimensional world does not fit onto a two-dimensional plane perfectly. So there's true. always a, a kind of an alteration of what you're seeing and an interpretation of that. And that's so right. just kind of stretching that a little bit more, you know, a little bit at a time can move you towards that more abstract perspective. Right. And, and one of the things for any approach to abstraction to keep in mind is that typically in abstract work, there's a few visual elements that the artist really works with well or really is interested in. So that could be color or shape or line. And it's, it's a good, it's a good starting point if you have been working representationally to look at your work and say, well, what's strongest here? Is it color? Is it form? You know, what, how can I, how can I move with that? So uh, I have, you know, some ideas and, and tips that I can share about, about how to do that. Um, and one of them By is... By all means. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're here for, right? Um, <laughs> and be, before I get started with that, I would say, you know, these three approaches, which is kind of a way to explain or teach, but it's it's pretty hard to pigeonhole any one artist into saying, oh, this person is all about one of these approaches, because most artists will include all of them to some extent, but it's kind of a way to think about it. Okay, so the first one would be based on the visual world, what, what you see. And one of the things that we see when we look out at the world is we have a... Um, a sense of depth, right? You see things far away, you see things close up. And usually in representational work, there is an effort to make, to create an illusion of depth. Like you're looking at a scene, you're looking at something in space. And so, you know, you're using things like perspective and foreshortening that have to do with creating that sense of looking at something in space. And one of the ways to move away from, uh, it, or further into abstraction, really, is to to do away with that that aspect of the work. Because once you take away the idea that you're looking at something sitting on a table or something in the landscape, then, as you would see it, then you enter a different way of seeing, which is going to be more abstract. Um, so um, that's that's kind of a good starting point to think, well, you know what, I don't have to render this thing to look three-dimensional. You know, we're just going to say, that's not that's not necessary right now. What you're dealing with is, you know, more like your response to the thing and how you would interpret it. Um, and 
I think another thing to just note before we get started with a few tips is that, you know, you you could look at a work of art that looks to your eyes like it is non-representational at all. You don't see figures, you don't see landscape in it, and yet you might talk to the artist and find out, well, they are starting with that sort of reference. And that's what I mean about there's there's really a huge range of interpretation. So even if you're starting from a visual source, you know, that could just be your point of departure. You could be changing it in a lot of ways. And and yet you're still connected with that source. And I, I say that it's kind of true about my own work that because I'm I'm almost always connected to the source of landscape in my own work. And yet I don't feel like I have to depict landscape or make sure that people know that that's what the source is. It just comes through, you know, when it does. So um, I guess um, a good starting point based on what you see is also what interests you the most. And we did kind of mention, uh, you said, uh, you know, you're always abstracting, even if you're working representationally because you're making choices. So, you know, think about, what are the things that that is most that are most compelling to you, and that kind of leads to what's the essence of this for you? Um, you know, my own work, looking at landscape. There's texture. There's color. There's a sort of a dramatic impact of things like rocks and cliffs, and so that's what I'm. That's what I focus in on. I don't. I could say I'm influenced by landscape in general, but it's not. It's it's certain things. And that's that's really important when you're when you're just getting started with this. Um, if you're working with the figure, it could be you know you just like the form. Do you like the movement? Do you like the character that might be expressed in someone's um, body or face? So you know those are just kind of starting questions. Um, it gives you a different, a fresh perspective. And I think another tip is that as you work on something. You know, you try not to let your own brain solidify into into what you're, the subject, the topic, the label. Like, oh, this is uh, this is a tree, so I'm going to make it look more like a tree. Your brain sort of starts going that way, <laughs> um, and I think it's it's a good practice to kind of catch yourself when you start getting too specific about, you know, what it is that you're putting actually putting down with your paint and say maybe think maybe shift your thought a little bit be a little more conceptual if if you're working from the idea of a tree you know what is it about the tree is it it's very stately it's very old it's moving in the wind you know what is it about it and and that's where you kind of can take your work in a more uh, interpretive I guess direction Sure. Well, and I think that that kind of ties to our discussion of symbols because, um, you know, part of what you do as you're developing an artistic style is you move away from uh, kind of representational symbols. Like we, we see this in children's art where trees look like lollipops because that's uh-huh. what a tree looks like, you know? Right. So in exploring this, you're kind of moving away from the symbols of what a tree looks like and then kind of back to it. And what symbols can I bring through that aren't necessarily tree-like, but maybe representative more of what the tree represents to me? Exactly. And, you know, symbol's another loaded word because there's 
you know, symbol can be anything from, like you say, something you'd see on a road sign that we all recognize <laughs> to a very personal type of symbol. And so it's, um, but the use of some recognizable object in a work of art does not make it, you know, overall a realistic painting. So that you can definitely use personal symbols um, in your work. And maybe, maybe if it was something about a tree, it could actually be a drawing of a tree, but it wouldn't be, you know, I was talking about that um, sense of space or depth, uh, that three-dimensional illusion. If you can do away with that and still use say a drawing of a tree on a on a color field or a different type of background it really shifts the viewer's focus onto what that tree might be about for you because you've you've gotten to some essence you're you're filtering out that need for illusion so sure you're just focusing on the the kind of the essentials of what what it is that you're trying to depict right right and and in order to to get to that point where you could do that, I mean, I think that that takes a lot of um, understanding of your own intentions and your own ideas to to be able to come up with any type of symbolic image that has meaning for you and for and, and some kind of emotional impact. So it's not something that happens overnight, or you just say today the tree is a symbol. You know, I mean, it sure. it it tends to be something you look back over your work and see what what's come out for you in your work. And, and again, people have a representational body of work that they've done, you know, look at it, think about, are there certain objects or things in this work that stand out to me as personally significant and filter out the other stuff that you've put in there to create the illusion of reality? Sure. The symbols in, in coming out of the work are not so much intentional as subconscious. Right. Yeah, yeah, and, and and so much about abstraction is kind of getting to that little bit deeper level in yourself and your own work, and so and, and you know I always try to emphasize in class this does not happen overnight. You know, it's it comes through the work. It's not just like you sit and contemplate, but although that helps, maybe some journaling, but it's also just uh, something that comes through your work if you're if you're open you let it happen and so um that's that's an aspect of really any kind of artwork i mean i don't want to say that's just about abstraction so i think um that's i guess those are some tips for coming at it from things that you see like this is a really good starting point and i used to actually when i first started teaching sometimes i would ask students to come to class with some kind of symbol or idea or icon in their mind and then work with that. But uh, it it turned out that wasn't great because people really, really focused on that too much and they were just meant to be learning a technique. Sure. It but, becomes too specific. Yeah. And that's, so that's, uh, that didn't turn out to work in terms of a four day or workshop or something. But I think overall, it's, it's a good approach and it helps kind of ground you. Like if you're trying to learn something new and you're stepping into abstraction to have some kind of touchstone or something that that you can grasp that's that is meaningful to you is is a really good really good step, I think. Um so I guess and, and one final tip with, with developing an abstract work that does have a relationship to what you're seeing is 
it's just kind of that keeping sort of an open attitude toward it. So letting letting whatever it is sort of emerge, not you know, not outlining it and filling it in and leaving it there as a solid thing necessarily. I mean, not saying that couldn't work, but at least in the way that I approach my work is let it evolve. Don't don't fixate on anything too quickly. And um try try to resist the urge that it all has to make some kind of logical sense. Like sometimes people think if I'm going to work with a particular image, I have to stick with the colors of that image or I have to make sure it's sort of proportionally correct or something. And, you know, those are things that you can you can move away from. All the whole process can be a lot more subjective. And I think the more open-ended you keep it, the more you're leaving that door open for some subconscious input that's going to make it more interesting. So, um, you know, it's like just keep keep your topic sort of in mind, but let things evolve and try not to solidify too quickly. Well, even people who work with realism, there seems to be a kind of trend toward allowing those things to come through and kind of experimenting with, uh, you know, using different colors or different forms in different areas right. and kind of pushing right. the limits of reality. Right. And as soon as as soon as you step away from what your eyes actually perceive, you're entering that that realm of abstraction. And we often talk about abstraction as a continuum. So there's, you know, there's little shifting points along a line, you could imagine. And at one end is absolute realism. And at the other end is absolute non-referential work. And there's all these places in between where there's aspects of abstraction, but it, it, it shifts and change so much. So I think that's another kind of idea for the whole thing about working with abstraction is, you know, there really aren't that many rules. <laughs> there are, I mean, you have to make it work as a painting somehow in terms of composition and everything. But whatever might be in your brain about, oh, this makes it abstract, or this doesn't make it abstract. I think it's good to loosen up about all that stuff. Well, you don't need to jump straight into the deep end. If you're if you're coming from uh, a realism standpoint, you don't need to go straight for pure abstraction. You can right. You can play with these ideas a little bit, incorporate them into your existing work. Uh, it doesn't need to be a radical change. Right, and and for some people, it is a radical change. I mean, I know of artists who made a pretty deliberate break with some form of representation, and you know that's that's a great challenge and i think i think it can work with people who have a solid understanding of the basics of art you know they understand how to use color and shape and the other elements of art and so and they have been using them all along in a more representational way and so for people that have that solid grasp i think that can work but you know, for many people, it's a, it's it is more a matter of kind of feeling your way into it. Do you think that for people who have that kind of grounding in realism, where they've been doing consistent work for a long period of time, it's actually easier to just jump into the deep end and go straight for totally non-referential work, and then try to bring those ideas back into their original work? I th- I think it's I think everyone is different, and I think. Certainly, if you feel that feel if you feel strongly that I'm getting rid of all imagery here, and I do hear this a lot when I teach workshops, 
say, go for it. You know, there's there's no one way that's right for everybody or one way that's better or easier or anything. Uh, but so I suppose that makes it a challenge to teach then, because you're dealing with people who are coming from all different places and not everything is going to work the same for each student. Um, you know, it's not like you can just <laughs> teach a specific way and it's going to work for every individual. Yeah, that's, that's really true. And the best I can do is, you know, I try to, I try to connect with each person individually and try to find out where they're coming from. And I, I actually look at some of their older work and, try to talk to them and 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 I'll note things that I see in their work that I say well this could be something you could work with like you have a strong sense of color or something and try to point out the strengths and so if somebody does want to make a more radical leap they've got some some basis to focus on and it's not just throwing everything in the in the mix so um and I guess it it kind of leads into the the next kind of abstraction that I want to talk about, which is what I call like um, the inner world, like your source of your work is coming from not so much from what you see, but it's coming from some kind of inner place. This can be, you know, an emotional place. Usually the the last kind that I'll talk about at the end is is more of a thought process, but this would be more of a feeling process associative memories and things like that, but it's not, there's not imagery in it. And this kind of thing we associate with the abstract expressionists, um, it's kind of an outpouring of of an inner world, really, and you're creating sort of a, a reality that's a different reality. It's not related to what we see. And so it's it's a very, it's a very intriguing way of working. It's a very challenging to make it work because it's it's what it's kind of what you get into when when people comment about something that looks like very easy or simple uh, or you know the great cliche my kid could do it and possibly your kid could do it because kids are very much more in tune with inner stuff like that and far less concerned with rules and things. And and many kids have an innate sense of composition that sort of gets destroyed at some time. <laughs> so, um, but, but basically, you know, this is, this is a challenging way for adults to work and to have it work well. Like there's a difference between just kind of putting a bunch of stuff down and having it actually work as a painting and so even though this type of work tends to be very intuitive and spontaneous, the other side of the brain has to be at work too, which is, is it working? How's the composition? Do I need to change the color somehow? And this is, this is where the challenges come in because you're, you're walking a tightrope there between, or a thin line maybe between uh, being in some amount of control and, and some decision making and also being really free. So uh, there's a contradiction there that's, uh, you know, <laughs> it's not easy really. And you might think this type of work is easy, but uh, it's, I don't find it to be so at all. And it's a kind of abstraction. Most, if you said abstraction to most people, just the word, that's probably kind of what they would think of. Just, just colors, lines, shapes, 
movement, texture. Um, so I guess, you know, when, when people are drawn to, to working this way, I, I advise them on a couple of things. And one of them is that that technical skill and the ability to work with the elements of design, like the ones I keep mentioning, color, line, texture, shape, that's really important because when you have a facility with all that, it allows you to be free. You know, it allows you to say, uh, I know what color I want or I know how to make this composition work. So there does need to be some kind of grounding in the basic art stuff. It's um, at least for us adults, you know. Do you think that there's been a a, a trend in uh, kind of the art community toward abstraction more in recent years? Is there more demand for teaching abstraction? Um, it seems to be. I mean, I think I think a lot of people see abstraction as as a line to their inner selves that they they find it um satisfying in a in a different way than absolute realism there's a there's a, a need really to understand yourself and and to figure out how to communicate that and it's uh, it's quite a pull i would say <laughs> i don't i can't really speak to the to the whole art world um I don't I don't see this type of abstract expressionism type of work that I'm talking about right now as as being hugely popular. Um there tends to be more I think more imagery in work today, but I think there's always going to be a pull to this kind of work because what what this emotional kind of expression does often is it immediately connects with the viewer there's an immediate gut response to what's been because it is sort of a, it's a feeling way of working so if as the artist you can figure out ways to communicate that to your audience you know there's there is usually a, a good response to people that are open to it so so that's uh, the first challenge of this kind of work is, is to have the technical skill to pull it off so it doesn't just look like a big mess sure and and I think the 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 second one is to be able to access that intuitive part of yourself, to to be able to work without overthinking. I mean, this overthinking becomes the big sort of bugaboo in this kind of work. Like, get out of the way, get out of your own way, and just try to work as intuitively and spontaneously as possible. Might sound easy, but sometimes this is something that really takes a lot of practice. And, you know, practice can mean just just uh, working with some medium that's very quick, like say you're just going to sketch or draw and, and just let it out, you know. And um, there, there are people that take work, teach workshops that really are about this kind of loosening up activity. So... Yeah, getting into the zone is its own kind of skill. <laughs> it is. And I think it's a it's an it's a mistake in people's thinking that if they if they like if they think they want to work this way and this is what appeals to them they think that it might be fairly easy and i think it's fairly easy to just put a bunch of stuff down but quickly for the artist it becomes unsatisfying 
usually. They they look at it and they know this is not making much sense here. Uh, often in workshops, people say, I'm just making a big mess, you know. <laughs> and And so there has to be some way of adding structure, being editing the work, being aware of what the work looks like to someone else. And that's really the third skill that I would emphasize with this kind of work is um, having the ability to step back and analyze it. You don't have to do it as you're working so much, but you have to pause at times and think, um, you know, how would someone else see this? And also what what would I like them to take away from it? What would I like them to be getting out of it? You know, what am I trying to convey? And is that coming through? And sometimes you need another pair of eyes to to give you some feedback there. Uh, This type of emotional work, we can get very close to it. And, you know, it's always hard to kind of look at your, your inner self from any kind with any kind of objectivity, I think. Do you find that the internet is a tool that is allowing people now more to share their work and get more feedback? Yes, it is. Although in most cases, the, the feedback is not very deep or honest, I guess. I mean, you need to find the right group though, to kind of share your work with and. Right. I think, I think probably the best feedback is always going to be face to face. And that, that can be pretty hard to find (laughs) because you can actually have a conversation, you know, you're not just, and, and plus the work of course is going to look way different in person. If it's subtle work, it will, you'll get all the nuances when you see it in person. And there are some kinds of paintings that just don't come across well, or sometimes they come across better online than they do in person. So (laughs) the most, the most honest, interesting feedback will come from another person. So for people who are developing their work, they really need to find a, a group of people who they can kind of work with and share their work with in person. I think so. And and how you do that, I mean, if even if it's just one other person who will interact with you and converse with you about your work, you know, even that is huge. And if you can, if you are involved in some kind of art group or uh, maybe an ongoing weekly class or something like that where people really get to know what you're trying to do. The, these are important, yeah, for people, especially if they're starting out. It's really hard to do this stuff in isolation. And I think I think the danger of online stuff is that people will put something up on Facebook or Instagram and, you know, they'll they'll collect lots of, you know, thumbs up and smiles and hearts and likes and all that. And yet, you know, what is that really telling anyone? I mean, it's hard to know. It's it's a nice pat on the back, but does it's not informative, really, unless people make comments that actually give you some kind of feedback. So there's a there's a certain danger. And just, I think, just putting everything out there, and then feeling validated by, by all the happy faces that come at you. And you have to develop your own self-critique process. And and that, again, it's a big topic. It would be interesting for another podcast, but I I really think it's important. And uh, so and it, it, that that's an inner thing. 
I mean, you, you can critique your own work, but you have to have a place, you have to have skills from which to do that. And I think with this type of more emotional work, it's, like I said, it's harder to get a distance on it, I think, to, to really be able to evaluate it. So, um, anyway, I think, I think it's a type of work that's very appealing to a lot of people, but it's, it's something that takes a lot of practice too. And I think in, in the best, the best of this kind of work, you really feel that you're entering someone else's reality. I mean, you, it's very direct work, you know, like you don't have to really interpret it in any other way than just I'm enjoying this. I'm, I'm really getting an interesting feeling from this work. And so, um, okay. And there's, there's one last type of abstraction that I want to mention. I call it kind of a, a cerebral abstraction. It it has more to do with, with, uh, with thought. And so it's not, it's not uh, referencing the visual world and it's not, focus mainly on emotion or intuition. It's a more formal kind of work, uh, sometimes called conceptual work based mainly on ideas, ideas that can be intellectual, they can be spiritual. Um, it often has a sort of a minimalist appearance because because the artist is not including real world images or or allowing the kind of gestures of variety that come through when you're just putting your emotions out there. So it tends to be uh, quite sort of distilled as an essence. It's, it tends to be quiet, uh, contemplative, sometimes more planned out than other types of abstraction. Um, and it's actually, it's really interesting to me that this is, when we look at the history of abstraction in Western art, this is where it started. And this was a long time ago. It was back in about 1910, 12. Artists were coming at this coming to what we call this pure abstraction out of theoretical ideas or out of a, a spiritual background. And that's another big topic, but it's related to that time of history when there were a lot of these kind of ideas were coming forth, uh, particularly theosophy was a big influence on this early work. So uh, very interesting approach to abstraction and Something I think that takes a different kind of uh, characteristic or personality. So I think one of the one of the things to consider as you're as you're thinking about abstraction for your own work is: do you respond more in a seeing way, or a feeling way, or a conceptual way? I mean, what what feels more like you? And I think that's that's a good starting point. And there's lots more we can say, but uh, we probably need to wrap this up for now. Yeah, we're we're going over time a little bit, and uh, yeah, I, I have uh, some things that I need to get to. So um, I, I think uh, I think that about wraps up this episode of the Messy Studio. Uh, you can find the Messy Studio on Facebook. You can also find public profiles for both Rebecca Kroll and myself, Ross Tickner. Uh, make sure to check out www.coldwaxbook.com and www.rebeccacroll.com and sign up for the email list to stay up to date on events, book signings, and openings. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back again next week with more art and entertainment. Uh, in the meantime, uh, please uh, subscribe on iTunes and uh, check us out on Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in as well. Uh, leave us a rating uh, and a review. Uh, it really helps us, uh, especially in the early days of the podcast here. Um, this week on the Messy Bulletin Board, 
Paula Rowland is a Santa Fe, New Mexico artist known for her works in monotype and painting, for her teaching, and for developing the Rowland Hotbox, a heated palette and encaustic surface for monotypes and monoprints. Rowland has also developed the Carbon Lab Mashup, a workshop she teaches which includes carbon-based media such as graphite, big brushes, and ink. For information on this and other unique encaustic workshops, and the Roland Hotbox, please visit www.rolandworkshops.com. See Paula's personal work at www.paularoland.com. Also on the Messy Bulletin, Sean Pope, handcrafted high-quality painting panels for local artists, available in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Made from Baltic birch plywood, these panels feature a full quarter-inch thick painting surface with three-quarter-inch Baltic birch plywood cradles in 1.5 and 2-inch depths that are extremely resistant to warping and bending. Aluminum painting surfaces are also available. These are superior painting panels that will be appreciated by artists and their collectors alike. Contact Sean Pope at sean at 5cuplture.com or phone at 505-974-1735. All contact information from this week's Messy Bulletin will be available on the Messy Studio Facebook page, as well as in the description for this episode. But until next time, embrace your creative space, messy or otherwise. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>